Hello and welcome to Unofficial Partner, the sports business podcast. I'm Richard Gillis. Today's guest is Michael Beloff, QC, who is often described as the godfather of sports law. And the person Chambers Legal Directory said more or less invented sports law as a discipline. As a result, Beloff is one of the most influential people in world sport across the past three decades. And he's written a memoir about his life and career in and out of sport. It's called MLBQC, and we recommend it highly. Beloff was called to the bar in 1967 and became a Queen's Counsel at QC in 1981. He's been a member of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, from 1996, and in that capacity has been an arbitrator at the Olympic Games, including Ethics Commissioner at London 2012. He's been on the CAS panel for UEFA and FIFA World Cups, chairman of the International Cricket Council's Code of Conduct Commission, and was elected one of the judges for the FIA's International Court of Appeal. So every sport has been influenced by Beloff in some way, and so the topic of conversation is very broad, ranging from corruption, doping and sports washing to how money changed the role of governing bodies and the people who run them. We talk about the image of lawyers, human rights, and whether sport leads or follows society. Nike's Vaporfly Super Shoes and his longtime friendship with the author and former politician Jeffrey Archer. If you're interested in the business of sport, you should subscribe to the Unofficial Partner newsletter that goes direct to the inbox of thousands of people across sport every Thursday. Sign up via unofficialpartner.com. Here is Michael Beloff, QC. I was wondering where to start because, first of all, I love the book. Congratulations on the book. It is a treat and I will uh, promote it far and wide in terms of the people listening to this from the sports business. Thank you very much for that tribute and I should make it entirely clear that I paid no bribe whatsoever you didn't, for what you said. You didn't. A bribery does come up quite often in oh, your book. Oh, indeed. Yes? <laughs> That's why I need to make these things clear at the outset. <laughs> We've also got something in common. We're all Spurs fans, I think. Yes. And Sean is... A uh, member of uh, Hampstead Ponds. Oh, really? Oh, well, three, that... Three times a week, so I've got... I've got oh, some thanks right here. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So you were... You, what was case. that? You were, you were representing them in some sort of... I was representing them because the city wanted to stop access unless they had a security guard um, on, on present. And uh, what's interesting about that case is not that we won, which was of itself interesting, but that um, I had notes passed to me from Lord Phillips, who was then Lord Chief Justice, and Lord Hoffman, who was the second senior uh, law lord, because both of them were avid swimmers and they wanted to be absolutely certain uh, that they could go on in the early morning without the need to be supervised. And as I say, I mean, two more ad hoc juniors one could not imagine in terms of their prestige esteem and sure. indeed the utility of their arguments. Sean goes and he's, he's always saying, you know, I met Benedict Cumberbatch there, I, you know, David Baddiel. I said, he drops more names than you do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's more practised. Actually, there's a very odd aftermath about that, that um, it's one of those uh, consoling things as an advocate when the other side then approach you to represent them. And there was an aftermath in relation to the Heath generally that the city came to me for advice. In the end, I couldn't do whatever case it was because I was either abroad or conflicted or some other reason. Sports law interests me because I'm not completely sure what it is. And I've read 
your book, and I think I'm further along. I get a lot of people saying, you know, that such and such is a sports lawyer. What does that mean, really? It really means, I think, that they adapt their other knowledge, skills and experience to a sporting context. I mean, there is a debate, is there such a thing as sports law? And on a practical note, one could answer by saying, well, there are courses in sports law, there are degrees in sports law, there are books in sports law, like I've uh, co-written, there are journals in sports law which I've edited, therefore it must exist. And I think a more sophisticated way of looking at it is that there are general principles of law that are, in fact, adapted to a sporting context. I mean, for example, the whole notion of a transfer system and paying and, and circumstances in which you have to pay compensation if you leave a club, it's very unlike ordinary employment contracts. And criminal law, take another example. Um, if you charge into someone in the street and give them a kick on the shins, uh, you might be prosecuted if someone makes a complaint. You can do that on the football field. Uh, it's part of the game. And as I say, the most intriguing case is boxing, where no one has ever been able actually to find a justification for it in general principles of law. Even Lord Mustill, I think, in that famous case about sadomasochistic practices, said he gave up. It's just there. We accept it. Maybe in a few decades we won't accept it, but that's and, as and it is. That, I guess, is the, the, the sort of how things evolve and what yeah. we worry about on... You know, it's quite a social history, your book, in terms of things that preoccupied us yeah. in, at one point and now what we're, what we're talking about. Um, there's a lot of bribery, there's a lot of doping. Yeah. I mean, m m money is the root of all the good and all the bad that's in sport. People wouldn't be so interested in taking cases before courts or before arbitral bodies if there were not a lot at stake. And when it was just an amateur game, so what? It was recreation. Now it's business. It's approximately, I believe, the 20th largest business in the world as an economic entity. And that's what's brought the money into it. And that's why you have sports lawyers and sports journals, etc., etc., etc. When I started... I mean, it would have been very difficult. I mean, there obviously were major cases involving uh, sportsmen. I mean, the famous Eastern case, which was the first impact on the transfer system. And then, of course, its success of the Bosman case in Europe and so on. But these were very much, um, you know, isolated cases, high profile because of the persons involved. But um, no one then was practicing in sports law. And I started entirely as a result of the fact that one of my colleagues at Magdalen College, Oxford, Adrian Metcalf, very bright guy, um, who founded, I think you could fairly say, the first pressure group by sportsmen, it was called the International Athletes Club, they got into a row about television rights because the three A's um, had at that stage assigned all the rights to televised um, broadcast of athletics in the UK to the BBC. The IAC, the International Athletes Club, and ITV wanted to have a broadcast a it was an, a novel form of competition then. This was individual athletes 
not representing nations or clubs or anything, being brought together just to compete against each, each other. I mean, it's, you could say it's a predecessor of what's uh, familiar in the Diamond League now. And uh, Adrian um, found that there was this issue, and he remembered that I was a lawyer and reasonably interested in sport, nothing like as good a runner as he was, and he came to me. And after that, of course, my clerks were able to say, every time someone rang up with a sporting issue, ah, oh, Mr. Bellow sees your man, so it snowballs. And once you started doing it, uh, you go on forever. So that theme... Of and they were trying to sell a sponsorship to Coke. Is that right? Yeah, it was, yeah, you're quite right. It's the Coca-Cola I, uh, yeah, ITV meeting, and it went on. We we lost the original case, but in fact, then the BBC either capitulated or something changed, and it, it became a, a regular feature on ITV. And now you've got things like if you if you you know today's daily agenda news agenda is so live golf. You've got a whole yeah. bunch of golfers who are essentially doing the same sort of thing and that's you yeah. know it's, it, I find it really interesting those themes that run through your well, book that well exactly so the and then there are going to be issues if those who have been excluded from the PGA events and the, you know the, the major golfing tournaments they'll take proceedings no doubt and then there'll be an issue as to whether or not that was right in the same way it's, it's, it's like the Eastern case the Kerry Packer case the Bosman case we go on you're right just a new sport I mean, just coming back to the first one, the case, I mean, I want to drop a couple of names here. I had to go to this meeting of the three A's where they were going to debate the issue, and I was accompanied by Mary Peters and David Hemery, both of whom become very good friends of mine and uh, obviously Olympic gold medalists, and we had to um, appear in front of Harold Abrahams, of course, the Chariots of Fire hero in his athletic days, in his administrative days. He was a rather conservative figure, if I can put it that way. And you won, lost? Well, as I say, we lost the battle, but we won the war. That year, they didn't get what they wanted, but uh, next year, they did. There's a, there's a whole bit about you and Geoffrey Archer at yes. the Olympics. Yes. <laughs> Can you just explain, how, let's, how do you know Geoffrey Archer? He's a good friend of yours. Geoffrey came up to Oxford to read some diploma or other. Um, it, when I was doing the second degree, I did. And um, Geoffrey obviously has a way with people, as I recognise is. Somehow he made himself known to me. I was sort of, sort of an Oxford grandee at that stage. And we became very good friends. And he was, I mean, he was an international athlete. I mean, not quite the Usain Bolt of his era, but he did compete for England, Britain. He captained the university team. And... Um, as a result of that, in our shared interest, we started going to the Olympics. I mean, the first one we went to together was Munich. Then he, he was much richer than I was, he actually went to Seoul. But in Barcelona, we started again. And he used to come to the World Championships with me. But his interest has somewhat waned, I think, in recent years. And he, there's a brilliant bit where you were, he, you were late and there's something about he was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was that wasn't Munich. That's right. You mean late getting back to the aircraft? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, it was a. I mean, it was a. Uh, an unfortunate game because, of course, the assassination of the Israeli athletes, but it was also athletically a riveting game, and there was an awful lot to talk about when we were waiting in the departure lounge, and we, we forgot to heed the fact and, uh, that we'd been called, and then we got this thing on the Tannoy Woods, uh, please to make this known, and we were taken some little sort of 
bus or car across and the passengers all waiting there, sort of derisory booze and so going on. Geoffrey managed to surmount that. He was extraordinary, I think, as I mentioned in other instances, extraordinary actually getting transport when there wasn't transport. I think I tell the story of when we, at the, was it a Commonwealth Games or Olympia? I can't remember, one or other, we got onto a bus which was full of, it was the Korean weightlifting team or something like that, and we just hijacked the bus. We got on it and looked around and <laughs> accents and words we couldn't understand, but we got back to the hotel, wherever it was. Didn't he try to ring Lord King from the back of the taxi? Oh, that's right, he did. At that. that was another one at Barcelona. <laughs> he, he arrived late when we were going to Barcelona. And he, yes, anyhow, we just got the plane and uh, we arrived. Um, when you look at, let's take football, because yes. that's, that's such a, you know enormous subject. Bosman is one that people always <laughs> land on. And you mentioned George Easton. That, was that the £100... A week. Yeah, then, yes. Yeah, so, well, that's what it. That's what people were paid in those days. But he wanted to. Was it to leave Newcastle for Arsenal? Yeah. So he. Was that was it, and he transfer. was a question with. He was tied to it, and he managed to bust that particular inhibition. I'm interested in the sort of role of the central bodies. You know, where whoever, however they are, FIFA or UEFA or FA, and this is obviously about sport more generally. How are they evolving? And there is a question at the end in terms of what they're going to become. Because obviously, as you mentioned, money has become enormously commercial operations. And has that changed them fundamentally? Well, it, it, yes. I think if one looked at it in very broad terms over the last, let's say, half century or even more recently, one would say that what's happened is that those who Will Carling memorably described as old farts, usually people who played the game in a particular level and then just remained there... Um, were not necessarily very well equipped to administer um, a sport that was generating thousands or millions of pounds, have been replaced by people who are more professional in terms of their administrative abilities. Um, whether or not the sports have entirely caught up, um, the administration has entirely caught up with the demands of administering the particular sport, I think is a, is a moot point. And there are obviously examples like um, FIFA under the Blatter regime, where they've simply diverted uh, into misusing the powers that they have. And um, that's a classic example of um, a international body that, to use an actor, has just gone wrong. And there are other bodies that I've encountered in my time on the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which um, showed similar signs of corruption and manipulation. And I think one of the problems, as I see it, I mean, when one talks about good governance, I think people last too long in these posts. Um, like even with just politicians, particularly today one might say they have a, a lifespan, though uh, Mr Johnson hasn't exhausted his lifespan, but you look at uh, Lady Thatcher or Tony Blair, I mean, at, after 10 years, whoever you are, people are getting fed up. I think there have to be time limits, because otherwise what happens is that the person in charge who has a role in distributing funds is able to build up a clientele um, because it's usually sort of one country, one vote, or one association, one vote, whether you're talking about the United States on the one hand or Vanuatu on the other. And therefore, if you distribute money 
to the federa- the national bodies of these smaller sports, you build up a clientele, and next time you're up for election, they'll vote for you. And that's, I think, how many of the most um, unhappy episodes in sporting administration on the international front um, have been seen. There's, there's a very um, interesting book actually coming out, which I just started reading, uh, by Craig Reedy, who was okay. head of WADA, but also um, spearheaded, as amongst other people, our Olympic bid. And as far as I can tell for the moment, I haven't got through it, and I think I'm intending to review it, it actually is a, a very interesting insight as to how decisions are taken, you know, the mechanics of selecting the Olympic city, etc., etc. Um, but, I mean, uh, Craig is a man of great integrity and so on. There are others who once heard other things. I, I'll never forget, and I think I quote this in my, in my book. When we had Jerome Valker, who was uh, Blacher's right-hand man, the general secretary, um, and we were quizzing him about, I think, the fact that he'd managed to, not hijack, but he had commandeered FIFA's private plane uh, to take, I think, he and his family to see the Taj Mahal. It wasn't exactly <laughs> a part of his functions as General Secretary. I'll never forget when I was quizzing him about this journey, Mr. Belloff, he said, you have to understand that there are two worlds. There is the real world and the FIFA world, or words to that effect. It was very epigrammatic, but I think it was also rather truthful. I mean, the benefits, of course, for being an administrator in a major international sport is that you have a whale of a time. You stay in the best hotels, you travel in style, you watch all these matches for free. Who wouldn't want to do it? When I was younger, I thought, ah, what I'd like to end up as a member of the International Olympic Committee. Uh, not only are there those benefits, there are other benefits that people have spoken about that I'm perhaps too old now to enjoy and think <laughs> about um, that were also on, on tap. No wonder people want to stay in the positions that they are in. But as I say, the trend now is towards professionalization, and the trend is towards ensuring that there is integrity. I mean, I was um, I, I was very impressed. I mean, for, I was the first chair of the disciplinary committee um, and the ethics commission of the IF, now World Athletics, and I was very impressed by the process that they went through to ensure that people on their committees and um, on the bodies that they also administer were people of integrity and competence. When I arrived there, I was put in post by Lamine Diak, who's now, of course, as you know, been prosecuted and convicted of various fraudulent activities of, of, dishon- activities of dishonesty. And although actually the cohort that I was given with one exception, and one wouldn't have known that at the time, was one of really distinguished lawyers in their various jurisdictions coming from around the world, the most obvious thing when I arrived there was there were no women. This was 20 either 13 or 15, but it's almost incredible that one should have been so isolated at that stage as to have no women on a body of that importance at all. And the first thing I did whenever there were vacancies was to start appointing women. And the interesting thing, it's gone now the other way. Um, I was at the um, 
uh, opening of the new CAS offices in Lausanne on Monday, which I was kindly invited. And I was speaking to John Coates, who was head of ICAS, the governing body. And one of the things John had done was to ensure that CAS, the arbitral body, as close, as quickly as possible, should become a 50-50 men, women. I think, as far as I know, no other sporting body has yet got to parity in that way. So this was very much in advance and one of his legacies, I think, to world sport. Didn't he get into trouble on a, for, for saying on a platform, or was, it, was he sort of well, condescending towards a woman? John uh, Coates, yeah. I doubt. I, Australian. Well, Yes, the Australian. Yeah. Well, if he did... At the last Olympics, he was, there was a sort um, of... I think if he did, um, his acts details. were inconsistent with his words because he was, I mean, as I say, he um, appointed to the ad hoc panels, certainly, 50-50. I, um, I, I simply... I'm not, I'm not aware of the incident to which you related. I'm not trying to be... No, sort no, of, no. I just, I'm not he, trying to be name rings Boris, a Boris Johnson-like <laughs> in, in saying that. Um... Sports washing. Yes. What's your general view, before we get into any specifics about it? I'll tell you what my general view is. I mean, I started off, and I'll give you an example of my own experience. When I was appointed to the ad hoc panel for CAS in the Beijing Summer Olympics in 2008, um, I right, somewhat naively thought, here we are, we've got China, it's a very closed community, but when the Olympics come to your country, you simply cannot shut the world out. I mean, either you invite them or you don't invite them. And I had a, a feeling, well, maybe in order to, to talking to people, seeing how they lived, etc., etc., it would open things up and say, you know, the West is not a sort of Dickensian morass that you believe it's uh, sophisticated, etc., etc., I'm bound to say that I don't think that was its impact. I mean, looking at it with the benefit of hindsight, what has happened? I mean, China's probably become a more closed society rather than a more open society. And so I think the argument that actually go to countries where they are authoritarian or even worse, and you will improve them by going, giving them the opportunity, I don't think anymore that that actually works. And uh, there's no doubt that they are using the games uh, for washing their reputations. I mean, there's a very interesting story to be told. We know about, to an extent we know about, how Qatar and indeed Russia got chosen for the last two football World Cups. And without betraying any confidences, I think I can fairly say that the choice of Qatar for the... World Athletics Championships, Track and Field Championships in Doha in 2019 was also not an open and democratic process. I won't say more than that, but I've heard from persons close to the X, Y, and Z. And indeed, when one went there, one actually says, I mean, you know, they having to fill the stands with schoolchildren and so on. Mm. I, I was very interested going there, as I knew by then that the FIFA World Cup was going to be there. And I thought, I don't know how people... First of all, it's too small. Second, it's too hot. I mean, at least they've changed the season now. You won't be able to buy beer or something. I mean, I, I have a very, very odd choice. On the other hand, you see, what's said is, well, we've got to 
push football into all corners of the globe and that's their position. But I, I suspect that it's in the end they were prepared to pay and provide the monies for the stadia and so on and so forth and that's it. From the, the perspective of the, the sort of regime, yeah. it's, a, it's an odd one. I, I mean, it's whether it actually works in practice as well in terms yes, of... As, yeah. So something like Saudi... Yeah, you know, and we can argue about their the regime there, but actually, what their relationship with Newcastle, this live golf, st- the the whole story is about them, and it's a it's an incredibly negative story that gets well carried. I, I, I think without again, I mean, as you know, I I chaired the panel, um, which was examining whether or not. Uh, the Saudi Investment Authority, or where its particular name was, um, were eligible to take it over. Now, what is interesting is that, now in my panel, we were not asked to, at that stage, to adjudicate on whether or not someone was a fitting person. It was a very narrow issue. It was the Saudi Investment Authority. I, I probably forget its proper name, but you know the body to which I'm referring. Was it independent of the state of Saudi Arabia or not? And we never had to come to a decision because, in fact, um, the uh, Premier League accepted them. But what is interesting is that subsequently no journalist ever differentiates. It's mm. spoken of the Saudis have taken over um, uh, Newcastle's. <laughs> the very issue we were having to decide upon, which we ever we decided, it'd be very interesting, supposing hypothetically we decided they were independent bodies. I wonder whether the public at large or the media would have accepted that. But anyhow, that is entire speculation. And certainly uh, we were never asked to pronounce um, on whether or not whoever it was was going to take over ought to be entitled to take it over but you have to see if you were a Newcastle fan I mean it's extraordinary I mean they're already you know buying players right left and centre and they probably will become again a serious club was there was there any in that process yeah and it's PIF is it PIF is the the funding yes is there any conversation about whether whether there is a rational business argument for the investment, does that come into it? Well, that it? didn't come in at that stage. As I said, the only issue at that stage was, are they independent of the government? Um, whether at a subsequent stage, I haven't you know, gone back, we didn't need to look at the rules in relation to that, but presumably there are. I mean, there are criteria for who are proper owners, and they're set out in the uh, Premier League's rules. But as I said, that was a, another step down the line. And you mentioned Beijing and, and Olympics. And, and Do you think boycotts work? There's, there's quite well, often calls Well, you see, for that. I mean, that's, that is an interesting point. I mean, there is one boycott that obviously did work in the long term, which was the, South, the boycott of South Africa, um, because a great sporting nation. And at the end, um, obviously, uh, they didn't want to remain isolated. It's not the only reason, of course, that apartheid was abolished and so on, but it was. It had a, an influence there. I think I can't think of other immediate examples where boycotts have actually worked. And that's the point. I mean, then what is often said by people who defend, well, what's, you say boycott, but in fact you won't change anything. You point to me somewhere where it has been changed. Um, I, I agree with you. I'm, I, was, I, was, I wrote exactly the same thing down in terms of whether it's the exception and, yeah. or, you know, rather than the... Board. I mean, you have to recognise, sitting as we do in a... 
a democratic country with the rule of law, etc., etc., we could say, well, we would only like major international competitions to take place in nations that are like ours. I mean, you know, the democratic, what I might broadly call the West, and so on. But in the end, sport can never be like that, because after all, it's played in places that don't subscribe to the same values and so on and so forth. So, I mean, there is that tension. And you, optimistically, you say, well, it's another method of communication that'll improve, etc. How does one know in the long term? Um, still on football, Enoch. Yes. And I ask this for a reason, because you were involved in... Mm-hmm. I was an advocate in the yeah, the that that was the issue was whether or not one owner could have two own two clubs in the same competition, and obviously today and we have on this podcast mm. s- several people who come in who know whose private equity businesses who are now buying up multiple clubs around Europe and around the world and um, what were the arguments for that was it integrity of the leagues was that part well, of well the- I mean we lost that case and and I think. Between you and me, I mean, I, I think probably if I'd been adjudicating, I would have come down on the side against us. But um, you can see, I mean, with sort of f- economic freedom on the one hand against the integrity of the competition on the other, were there other ways in which, for example, unless and until you got to a stage where the two clubs owned by Enoch were both in the final, would it matter so much, and so on and so forth. I can't, frankly, I, this was, I think, 1998. It's quite a while ago, and I have forgotten. But there were arguments. I mean, we weren't putting forward arguments that were absurd. And actually, it's a very influential decision, that decision. That is a decision in which this so-called concept of the Lex Sportiva, that's to say, particular principles that are applicable only or uh, to sports law and in certain circumstances could even be used to override contrary uh, regulations, uh, probably dealing with fairness or discrimination and the like. That was when it was first generated. Um, no credit to... Uh, I was just an advocate and I didn't put it forward, but the panel decided that, that there was such a thing as Lex Sportiva. And um, as an arbitrator, I have actually used the concept from time to time if there's nothing else to achieve the right result. I don't, I, it's very difficult to think of any case in which that's been decisive, but um, it's sometimes been mentioned as supporting of the arguments that are otherwise put forward. There was an interesting bit I thought, I mean, I'd not heard before, which is, which is a, there was a question about VAT on a bridge tournaments. European Court of Justice and what a sport is. That's a very interesting case. The phrase says, limited to activities satisfying the ordinary meaning of the term sport characterised by a not negligible physical element. Yes. Well, that's what they've decided in the context of the VAT regulations. I suppose you could have other formulae. I mean, there isn't a, a, a legal definition of sport that's applicable across everything, every context you choose to examine. What's your favourite description or insult about yourself that you've heard in the media? Can I, can I go first? Yo, please, because I'm sure you've got an encyclopedia full of them. I think <laughs> it's The Telegraph called you the silkiest assassin in sport. Oh, that was I think a- that was a compliment. <laughs> oh, that was clearly a compliment and intended to say. If you read the rest of it, you can see that. That's when I was first appointed to the IF 
disciplinary and, and ethics commission body. Yeah, no. At least, I, I hope I'm not so blind as to have misinterpreted that. I think if you read the whole thing, uh, you will find that he intended as a compliment, which he said, you know, this guy, he said, may be able to s uh, sort out the problems that athletics is having, whether I had did or didn't, is another matter. Which added to your reputation and let well, your clerks get yeah, more work Exactly. Yeah, well, <laughs> by then, I think I had enough. <laughs> um, what do you think the image of lawyers is in the general population. Well, you see, it depends what type of lawyers you're talking doesn't it? I mean, we now got all these uh, barristers on strike. Uh, and I mean, the, I've always said that in the law's house there are many mansions. I mean, you do start at the top with people earning in enviable sums. I mean, not as much as uh, Ronaldo or uh, Mohamed Salah or anything of that kind, but, uh, you know, <laughs> well above the national average. And I suppose they are then described as fat cat lawyers. I remember, I mean, it was once or grouped among that, and I remember then Lord Chance, that was an insult. <laughs> that was was made, but on the other hand, I think there probably is a certain amount of sympathy uh, for those who are actually struggling to to make a living. But on the whole, if you'd asked me, lawyers in the popular perception, on the good side or the bad side, I would say probably it's on the bad side. They're not the most popular group. I mean, you know, teachers and doctors and carers would come way above that. I think we'd probably be above sort of hedge fund managers and... Uh, Stay at ease. Yeah, st <laughs> yeah st exactly. Journalists. <laughs> Some journalists. Do you yeah. think what's the... I mean, going back to sports washing, mm. there, was a, there is, there is a, the lawyer as a sort of enabler mm. playing that role, and I know that's a live debate within the sort of legal profession. It's quite hard to tell the difference between them and reputation PR type managers i guess that in my mind that always that all gets thrown into the pot of under the banner of lawyer yes i mean it's it's after all a pr and reputation managers have now become a distinct um career you could call it a distinct profession if you like uh for which you probably i don't think they're as far as I know, any acknowledged qualifications you have to have or any degrees or diplomas, any of that kind. And it is true, of course, that lawyers are also used to improve reputations. I mean, the libel bar is an obvious example. But then you, you raise this question about enablers. Well, I start, I mean, I'm, I am a, actually a great believer in the cab rank rule, the rule that, you know, subject to the exceptions. You're, the, the important one is that you cannot decline to take a case because you disapprove of the client or of the client's uh, position or his or her cause. I, I, I great believe in that. Then you get the position well, where you're not obliged to take it. Someone, for example, if you're not subject to the cab length rule, if you're a solicitor who's not got advocacy duties and so on and so forth, then the argument, I think, becomes more diluted but still plausible. Well, everyone is entitled to be given advice or to make representations or something, and if, in fact, um, the law permits whatever it is, well, so be it. Then change the law. Uh, you know, it's all these things about sanctions. All right, you challenge the sanctions. And 
all right, if you think you ought to be imposing sanctions on a group of people, tighten it up. But don't blame the lawyers. There's no reason to blame the lawyers for seeking to exploit loopholes. If there are loopholes, close them. And if there are not loopholes, well, the lawyers done their job and they can't find out. Is there not a sort of ethical... Is there a, a morality to that? Well, which I, is don't think, I don't think... You see, difficult. I think it's a... I think... I, I often ask myself whether I, you know, because, you know, so many years arguing both sides are a case, so many years subscribing to the cab rank rule, so I don't need to consider whether I agree or disagree with my client, whether I've now become sort of amoral in some way, whether it's... Chip, but, I mean, I, I don't think the actual activity in which I was involved and following the principles that govern that activity, it may, as I say, enable wicked people to prosper, but then you want to change the law or the judge should have come to a different decision or whatever. I, f I would find it more disconcerting if every time, and as I say, I've effectively retired from advocacy now, if every time I had a, a, a case of that kind, I had to decide, well, do I actually want to represent this guy or not? And then, then I think the whole thing dissolves. I mean, you've got, you've got to have firm principles, and the principles are firm, and as I say, it, it's... Uh, the <laughs> Uh, many people, I mean, when you, I, I sometimes actually, I don't do any criminal law anymore, I mean, I did a little bit when I was much younger. When I look at some of the people who are being defended and you see what the outcome was and you look at the evidence as it's retailed in the newspapers, you think, how on earth? What on earth were they saying? How could they have defended us? Then you come back and say everyone's entitled to have a defence made if they can. Makes up. And sometimes, of course, uh, people will walk out of the dock scot-free when they ought to be in prison for 20 years. The last bit of your book is, is a very interesting sort of look forward or some mm. predictions in there about how things are going to move forward. And yeah. You've obviously got this sort of balance of conservatism and how it's going to modernise. Yeah. And the obvious from a person who doesn't know anything about the law, oh, the whole ceremony yeah. and the robes and yeah. the, the wigs, yeah. which are very off-putting for lots of people. And Are they going to survive? And Are they just a symbol of something deeper? I, uh, I, for, for my part, I'd be more than happy to have, to have got rid of wigs. I mean, when you first put it on and it's absolutely white and you think, oh, marvellous, I'm a barrister, that's what barristers look like. But actually, to grow over, it's actually rather inconvenient in the summer, <laughs> particularly so. As you know, in the high, in the Supreme Court, they've stopped um, ha having them, and in many courts, they've stopped having them. I think, on the criminal bar, I think the answer is that actually it's quite useful to anonymise yourself in case, you know, you get to come up in the street and someone you for not doing a proper job or, or whatever. But I think if you ask what the trend is, I think I think gowns will last for longer because it is a symbol of a so-called learned profession and I don't think that of itself is distasteful and I actually think it's probably quite a good idea that you know which are the lawyers and which are the people, just the spectators or the clients or something. But maybe even that will be regarded as old-fashioned in a hundred... Well, it's certainly not going to reinstate um, things that have gone. I mean, the whole call ceremony is quite... 
bizarre when you dress up in these, you know, these, these capes with little leggings and particular shoes. You have to buy these shoes with buckles, which you'll never wear again. Um, and if you, if you can't borrow them from someone with feet the same size. But, I, you know, I'm, I'm, that's almost an in-house thing. I'm not against that as a matter of tradition. I think it's quite nice to link back. But I know there are others who would take a different view. As I say, the trouble is I can, nowadays I can see both sides of the argument and prediction is where do I generally think it's going to go? I mean, what I think is... One thing I think we'll say about the profession, the younger people, certainly in, my, in the chambers here, are really very concerned about justice and human rights and so on in the way that I think my generation were probably less so. I mean, as I say, I, I think it's important to be able to argue both sides of a case if you're instructed on one side or the other. I don't say anyone here would be prepared to, you know, well, they don't do criminal work, but be prepared to argue in favour of some law, let us say, that was misogynistic or homophobic or racist. I mean, they just wouldn't be instructed in that kind of thing. They would feel a distaste. But um, that's just because I think they do genuinely come to the bar now, not to make money, but to promote justice. I mean, it's perhaps easier to do it in these chambers where they earn a lot of money making, <laughs> promoting justice anyhow. But they do a lot of pro bono work. I mean, I did a, I did a certain amount of pro bono work, and I think it's very good that, the, uh, that you one should. What, what are the big money makers for the law chambers? What, where what, does the money... Where does it... Well, the, the, most, the, 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 the most one are tax chambers, in fact. Um, that's where the, you know, huge amounts. But obviously the commercial ones. I mean, one getting into, as I say, you know, seven-figure sums and the silks at the top of these chambers, I'm sure, um, still do. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's commercial, it's corporate, it's tax. Where it isn't is family, unless you're doing, you know, how to distribute the assets of a trillionaire, and where it's not is criminal unless you're defending uh, some high-up person who's uh, said, uh, said alleged to be guilty of fraud. There'll be a lot of money doing that kind of thing, but the ordinary daily routine, you're not going to make much money going into that side. And is there right. a sort of balancing process that happens? Are, you know, some money taken from over there to support over here? Well, it's just started. I mean, for example, during the uh, pandemic, and, and uh, uh, it, it is true, I think, that this chamber sort of contributed to try to assist people in criminal chambers. To, but I think, as I say, only to a certain extent. I mean, it's not really the responsibility of... Um, one set of chambers to support another. I mean, it's very much the same debate going on at Oxford and Cambridge as well, I'm sure, where colleges have different wealth. And there is a modest redistribution system from the richer to the less rich, but it's a modest redistribution. It isn't a sort of equalisation, so it ends up with everyone having exactly the same assets or income and so on. Um, well, um, where does sports law, just before we move on, where does sports law fall into that between tax and family? I would think it's I would think it's a relatively well paid because usually the kind of cases um, that uh, people who are sports laws get involved with have got 
a price tag. I mean, obviously, for example, <laughs> the advocates were appearing in front of us in the Newcastle case. I think I can say without possibility of contradiction or without even any inside knowledge, working a great deal more per hour than I and my two colleagues, Lord Newberger and Lord Dyson, two more distinguished lawyers one could find difficult uh, to identify. But that's that. That, that's what it's like. I'm and what, just, what's the difference between a good sports lawyer and a bad one, or a, a, an okay one? Well, it's, it's the same as the difference between a good lawyer and a bad lawyer, actually. I don't think there's anything in particular in sport, except I think in sport you've got to have an understanding of how it operates, the context in which it operates. So is it a sort of 80-20 thing? You've got, you obviously know, need to know the law and whatever yeah. sector it is, but then that 20% of context, is it, that's I, important? Yes, I don't know how much. Uh, I think the point is that people wouldn't move into that area unless they were interested in sport. Yeah. The other bit is you were talking there about justice and people in this court and young mm. people coming into court, coming into chambers, and we talk about human rights. And where, whether sport leads or follows in these issues, because quite often... Is it something that amplifies an issue to a broader audience? So I'm thinking, you know, the trans sport issue yeah, at the moment, which is a sort of yeah. obviously a very contentious, and it just brings with it all sorts of applications that go to every part of society. Is it what gets decided in sport? Does that impact? Well, the I mean, the, the example you've given is where, I mean, there are two sides of the argument, but there is a strong argument saying you've got to take sport out of the general approach. I mean, speaking, as it were, entirely for myself, I would say I'm perfectly happy if people want to change their gender, if they want to be called he when they were born a biological woman or vice versa and so on and so forth and absolutely that's their right and they can be respected for that but I'm afraid when it comes to sport I am alas of the view that biology does trump identity and I think that's where the debate is going on but I mean it'll contribute I suppose to the ordinary debate because people will then ask the question as to is identity always to be respected? If so, why is it always to be respected? Are there any exceptions? And if so, what exceptions should you make? I mean, I've come into this, as it were, later. I've, not, I've never been involved as an arbitrator or an advocate in a transgender case, but I have been involved uh, in what were called, as it were, the intersex cases. Um, and those were the ones that also raised the same issue. Are there biological advantages of what one might call intersex people? I mean, it's quite actually a convenient phrase because they are people who have biologically mainly female, but also some male characteristics, the male characteristics that have these elevated testosterone levels and give them so the argument goes, a conspicuous advantage. And certainly in the sport which I'm most interested in and followed for so long, athletics, that's the way in which the regulations have been drafted. So to that extent, you can see that um, the way in which sports issues come up will have a, a kind of knock-on effect. I mean, very interestingly now, we have suddenly started having a lot of people putting their hands up and saying, I'm gay. And uh, it's always been, it must be clear that 
in the footballing community, there must have been far more people who were gay than were prepared to admit it. Uh, but now we've got, as I say, swimmers and so on. I mean, Kelly Holmes has come out, as it were, retrospectively. There are other who are coming out now. And that, I think, is going to have a very considerable impact in eliminating or diminishing homophobia generally. So, yeah. So the sport can lead, can lead the way. And if it doesn't lead the way, at least it pushes general issues in a particular direction. The very fact that there are some people who believe, as, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm of that cohort, as it were, who believe that in sport, biology should trump identity, you would put that in the context of saying, but otherwise I am entirely happy that people's identity should be respected. So the very fact you've got an exception makes you focus on what the general rule ought to be to that extent. There's this interrelationship between the issues. Okay, right. I need to talk about cricket. Yes. Because uh, you're involved in a very high-profile case. Let's talk about that first of all. I want to talk about Kerry Packer as well. Yes. So let's talk about the, uh, the sort of match-fixing yes. case. Were you at Lord's when it happened? Uh, by accident, I was at Lord's the next day after it had happened. And I'll never forget sitting there in the ICC box and some, some of the Pakistani were bowling. Someone immediately said, no ball. I mean, you know, <laughs> wit in the crowd. I mean, actually, it was quite witty at that particular stage <laughs> to say it. But that was pure coincidence. I happened to be there on the day after. Um, but there are two points. I mean, I don't know if you've got particular questions. But I'll make two points yeah. about that case, if I may. The first is that it would probably never have come to light if it had not been for this journalist, the, shake, the fake shake, as yeah. you know, substantially got rubbed the world. And he's, yes, because regulatory bodies do not have the coercive powers of public authorities and therefore they rely very much either on the fact that police have been involved and have tapped telephones and used other uh, means of identifying evidence or because apparently a, a journalist of the kind like the fake shake. Because it was interesting that when we were doing the case we, we, we watched the commentaries and some of these people, you know, they were international crickets of huge distinction. They knew the game inside out. You've got the feeling, they think, well, that's a little odd. But no one went so far as to say, look, that cannot be genuine. I mean, you know, he, he must have deliberately overstepped rather than. So there was that aspect um, of it. So the, the lack of coercive powers. The second point that I would make is that that was a very high-profile case in a very high-profile context. I mean, a, a test match at Lords between two major cricket play powers. I can tell you from my own experience, and indeed, I mean, the record shows, the spot-fixing or match-fixing that has gone on since then has been at a much lower level. And the reason it's there is because people will gamble on almost anything, but it won't be noticed so much. So again, the cases that I've had to adjudicate upon, usually someone has actually put their hand up, or someone has said, I was approached by so-and-so, and then you see, you've already got evidence on one side, then they come in there interviewed, and either they put their hands up or they uh, put some colourable explanation. But it's going on, what I would think, in the undergrowth 
of cricket. I'm not sort of being disparaging about people playing in lower leagues and so on and so forth, but it's just not... I think the sort of Hansik Kronje or the Pakistani trio case, I'd be very surprised if we got anything at that kind of level in the future. So, and that's that's one of the worries about lower league football, isn't it? Yeah. That it's, there's just... The incentives are there and... and yeah. It's going to be hard people, to are get, people are prepared to gamble on anything. And if they're prepared to gamble on anything, you can say, all right, um, you want to know if, you know, we, um, we'll be penalised for offside or something six times in the first half. You can, you know, manoeuvre that kind of thing. And if you're clever, of course, you can get away with it. I mean, sometimes there have been some... I remember some case... Oh, long time ago, a football case. I think it was uh, in some Arab country where, I mean, the goalkeeper had so obviously deliberately let the ball in. I mean, no one could have been quite that incompetent before helping it on its way. I mean, if people are stupid enough to behave in that way, sometimes you can find them. But I mean, one of the um, a panel I did, a cast panel I showed, I think I mentioned this in the memoir. Uh, this was the Oryevkev case, and that was, I think, a, a referee who had been um, asked to fix a particular result. And the only reason we were able to prove that case was because the police, I think it was the German police, were onto this, and they had tapped the telephone, so there was, as it were, real evidence there. Without that, who would have known? Does it make you cynical about sport sitting in front of these cases and all your experience it, it, at CAS? It, it makes me sad, I think, rather than cynical. I'm particularly sad because I've adjudicated on a whole series of cases in the athletic context with, you know, Olympic and world champions and record holders. Usually what's happened is I've never... I don't think in that I've actually taken someone's gold medal away. But what the result of the adjudication has been on the evidence that people who may very well, and you simply, and in fact it's impossible to say otherwise, who simply, um, at the time they, they won their gold medal, it was entirely legitimate, there's no proof to the contrary. Afterwards, when they get a little bit older, there's so much money in the sport, you want to stay in the sport, and therefore that's when you start doping in order to you know, perpetuate what becomes a money-spinning enterprise. So it's really, I find it very sad, because these were, you know, people, because I'm a huge fan, these were people I thought were absolutely marvellous athletes, and maybe they weren't marvellous athletes in their prime, but afterwards I know that the effect of finding that they've been guilty of doping in the later stage of their career will always mean that people will say, oh, well, you know, probably at the time as well. I can't stop that, but that's, you know... There, there was a sort of interesting bit where you mentioned Craig Reedy earlier, where yeah. he, I think it's Usain Bolt's a false oh, start, yes, that's and right. he turns to Ed yeah. Warner, I think. No, no, he turned to me. Turns no, to you. No, no, yes, Ed Warner's another story. Yeah, we were sitting together, I think it was either in Osaka or Daegu, I can't remember. Whatever it was, it was the one where Usain Bolt full started in the 100 metres and Craig said to me, I'd like to see what the Asian betting markets were. And I make the point that 
I mean, someone, you know, the integrity and experience of Craig could actually suspect that this might be the result of a gambling thing actually was rather dispiriting because there were plenty of other explanations, the true one being, as I say, he was a little bit afraid of Johann Blake, who was at that stage in Antremont, and just full started. Okay, we talked about the image of lawyers. When you see a film, yes, what's the best portrayal of a lawyer in a film that you've seen? Well, none of them are particularly accurate because one of the differences between real life and films is the speed with which things happen. Um, and indeed the fact, for example, that no one bothers with examination in chief, it's all cross-examination. So it's very sporadic um, and uh, thematic and so on. Um, I mean, there, you know, there are films which one's hugely enjoyed um, with with lawyers, I'm just trying to. I mean, I've I, on uh, Charles Lawton's film, a Witness for the Prosecution. That's marvellous. So, would um, Cass uh, make a good film? The inside I of Cass, or would it be I a tedious sort of do- I documentary? I don't think it would be. Would be quite interesting. I mean, uh, just one other case that I didn't mention before. That was, a, a, again, a potentially very sad case. There was that marvellous Irish swimmer, Michel de Bruyne, who won three gold medals, coming from the public of Ireland, the first time ever happened in swimming competition in Atlanta. Uh, her husband was alleged to be, um, as it were, dubious morals and so on in terms of doping. And then later... Um, she was, um, the inspectors came round. I mean, this was several years later, and they found she dilate, diluted her urine with um, whiskey, which is a terrible waste of Irish whiskey, but nonetheless. And, I mean, it was a bang to rights. Um, that was the first case, Cass case that had ever been open to the public, but no one actually turned up there. Now, as you probably know, as a result of the so-called Pechstein, the famous Pechstein decision, if there's a disciplinary case in front of Cass, then the presumption is that the athlete who is under threat of being of having a disciplinary sanction maintained is entitled to ask it to be in public. And people do watch, and it rather depends who they are. I mean, I recused myself from the case of Sun Yang, uh, you know, the Chinese swimmer who uh, um, destroyed the blood which had been taken by the inspectors. I I, I recused myself in the end because if he'd gone on challenging me, he he would have been entitled to participate in the Tokyo Olympics, and the issue was whether or not he ought to be entitled to. So the case was heard in time and he was debarred from the Olympics. That was watched by lots and lots of people, of course. I mean, he was a hero. In, it's rather difficult to think of any equivalent in England. I suppose it would be David Beckham. He was a national hero. And so there were a lot of people who came to watch actually live, and it was broadcast as well. And But I suppose people would watch cases if they involved really high-profile sports people or teams. But otherwise, generally, I wouldn't advise you to watch it unless you had to. <laughs> we, we, we now sometimes get transcripts of the hearings in front of us. I think, my gosh, you're going to listen all over every game. And there we are. You have to, I suppose, if you are an arbitrator, to make certain you have all the facts at your fingertips. And finally, you still enjoy sport? It's yes. not put you off sport? No, it hasn't put me off sport at all. I mean, at my age now, I'm not going to do sort of long-distance travel anymore. And actually, I find 
the televised so well that it's actually I like watching replays and so on because especially you know take the hundred meters you know like that you'd actually like to see where you know who started quickly etc cetera, etc. Cetera. What I really like I mean as I say I'm, if, if you ask what's my favourite sport without any doubt track and field ever since I was about that high and what I really like are long-distance races that develop. I love watching people, you know, dropped off the back for more and more, and then suddenly, you know, you have this... Um, I mean, I find it riveting. Other people would say, no, well, actually, it's like everything in, in life now, they prefer things to be done very quickly, so anything about 400 metres, no, I'd prefer to make... And the they're team. all wearing these incredible shoes. That they're all wearing... The shoes, that's also... That is, an <laughs> in, that is an interesting issue. Will Usain Bolt's records be broken by someone just because they've got better shoes? But then uh, uh, this enters into the whole realm of the advantages that people have. Um, you know, you could then go back to why why is naturally elevated testosterone something that you prohibit but you allow people to buy shoes that aren't generally available or not available unless you've got the money to do it or able to afford to go to altitude training. I mean, then you do enter into these. A very, very interesting book by a man called Professor Tom Murray. It's, it's called something like Good at Games. So he is a professor of ethics, and he actually sat on my um, ethical commission for in the, the World Track and Field. Um, and there he goes into these kind of issues. Why do we accept some advantages but don't accept other advantages in a very sophisticated way? But you could debate the thing for hours and days and years if you wanted to. Keeps, keeps lawyers in work. Keeps lawyers in work. <laughs> Michael, thank you very much for your time. Really enjoyed it. And the book, as I said at the beginning, we'll, uh, we will plug to anyone who'll listen because it's really great fun. Well, that's very kind. Which you don't often say, say about a sports law book. It's no, I think that's true. And I don't think you often say it about lawyers' books. They're not necessarily there for fun. Thank you.